If you found our methodology, podcast, and general view on sales performance intriguing, you may find this offer very interesting. And as you know, we don't do them often. Before I share what the offer is, here's three brief questions I'd like you to consider. Number one, do you want to take your prospecting to the next level without being that guy who struggles with solicitation confidence and boundaries? Two, do you want to know exactly how to build trust with people in a way that compels them to want to spend time with you? Three, do you want to build an outreach cadence and routine that will help you succeed in a hyper-changing business environment? If yes to any of these questions, join Lapa 180 in our new four-part webinar series that starts February 15th, 2023. Go to lapa180.com slash webinars to learn more about this special series. I mean, as humans, you know, we have a fundamental need, a need to feel safe and feel secure. And you can't just make that happen, right? I mean, we still sleep with our backs towards walls or things, right? Like we, we have all these things that have existed as long as we have that get to at our core, we need to feel safe. That was Dr. Nicole Fisher-Roberts, Executive Director of Feed a Billion, an international nonprofit that feeds girls around the world to prevent exploitation. She's also the founder of Health and Human Rights Strategies, an independent international institute that works to promote the advancement of healthcare and human rights. Nicole received her Doctorate of Public Health from the University of North Carolina, along with a Master of Public Policy from the University of Chicago. In this two-part one-on-one interview, Dan continues his deep dive into the core attribute of sales, that often vague set of social behaviors we call trust. In this episode, Nicole and Dan discuss the relationship between risk and trust, power of vulnerability, how to build trust through questions, and how that old sales pursuit of finding commonalities shouldn't be your only rapport tactic. And now, the second part of their conversation. We tell our listeners, put away the immediate gratification need on outreach, prospecting, emails. It's very rarely going to happen. Put your energy toward giving, right? Try to figure out to the best of your ability, either through social media or whatever, what interests does your prospect or person have? And then give. Don't expect anything in return. And I think that frustrates innately sales professionals, because I think part of what can make a sales professional really good is persistence when done right or consistency when done right. And this whole giving idea, though, I think it takes a lot more patience today than it did five, seven, eight years ago. I think you just have to be very patient. I think that's right. And at the risk of putting the cart before the horse, I am actually starting, it will get done, but I'm starting to work on a book about generosity. And it's exactly getting at, in many ways, what you just said. And it's about when you give without expectation, right? It's like a gift. Once you give the gift and it's out of your hands and it's in the other person's hands, you can't be mad if they don't write you a thank you note or they don't give you an equally valuable gift at your birthday or whatever, right? You're giving a gift. If you're giving something, you can't have expectations, 
Um, but what you'll find is that the more generous you are with your time, whether it's mentorship all the way to getting to know the potential client, getting to know their interests, the more generous you are with whatever it is, it will come back to you. You will, the more successful you will be, but it's not immediate gratification. Um, you know, I've been at this for a long time now. And one of the examples I've given to younger people is I once gave a lot to a potential client and I got nothing in return. In fact, I thought they forgot I existed as a human and five years went by and something came up uh, with National Geographic and they came out of nowhere and said, hey, I thought of you because five years ago the following things happened and it really stuck with me. And so when Nat Geo asked for a person who had these qualities, you were, you were top of mind. And I remember sitting back going, Holy crap. <laughs> I, I really thought they didn't know I existed, but because of what I did five years ago, I was in their mind and I got a really cool client out of it. <laughs> That's such a great story. We, we, we tell our clients and those that we coach that all the time is try not to make assumptions on why someone did not return an equal amount of generosity or why someone who you thought would definitely respond has not responded, right? It's, it's this whole idea of just let it go, right? Because assumptions more often than not are a big waste of time and energy. That's right. <laughs> and to everyone I owe a response to of some kind, I'm sorry. <laughs> Just a little overwhelmed at the moment. I wanted to get into, say, is all trust the same, right? Because mm. when we first meet someone for the first time, you know, my gut is whether it's over coffee or lunch or even on Zoom, there's a low risk for the other person, right? If it's a 45-minute discussion or introduction, their risk is, number one, the 45 minutes, and then the experience they have within the 45 minutes. But that's probably it. And then mm -hmm. as relationships progress, though, specifically in business, trust doesn't stay the same because more time is now being invested, more cognitive energy is being deployed through these conversations. So can we talk a little bit about, you know, is all trust the same? That's a great question. I think if you ask 10 people, you'd get 10 different answers. Um, my answer is it depends on what you're trying to get out of it. <laughs> Uh, and what I mean by that is I don't think all trust is the same, but I think a lot of what we're trying to accomplish is the same. And so you can kind of put things in different tiers, right? You can immediately say a working relationship is very different than a personal relationship. That 45 minute coffee, if you're meeting to potentially hire someone, you're going about it and wanting something very different than if it's a first date, right? The emotions behind it, the risk behind it. I mean, you could at face value say they're both 45 minute coffees, but you know, in a different scenario and one, you're looking at a potential 
could this person be a partner? And I, you know, allow them into my home and into my space and to meet my family. So the things you're looking for, the cues, the, the attachment, the, you know, whatever it is, what you're looking for is very, very different than is it, am I going to hire this person? Am I going to buy something from this person? Am I going to just build a relationship that may come to fruition in 10 years, but they're a wonderful person to know. We share a lot of LinkedIn contacts or something. Um, you know, what you want out of that relationship is very, very different. And so I don't think the trust is at all the same. And yet I would argue a lot of the trust building activities are exactly the same. It's just what they mean to us. If we meet with a prospect, that initial meeting, as I said, is 45 minutes. What's at risk, right? Four meetings later, though, maybe oh, a no. total of five or six hours now invested. And now this person is thinking about debating change, right? That trust level, I feel, has to have evolved because what's at risk now potentially for the prospect making the decision is far mm -hmm. greater than just the loss of 45 minutes, which yes. is what started the engagement. I think a lot of times our listeners maybe take that for granted. I mean, just because you build trust to a degree in that first meeting and you end up getting a second meeting, it doesn't mean it's near the same amount of trust needed or the type of trust needed for someone to actually make a decision to choose you and partner with you and do business with you. Trust is innate. And, you know, if I ask a hundred people, how do you build trust? It's like one of those questions that nobody seems to really understand or know the answer. What happens between two human beings that causes trust to occur? I know I'm getting a little bit more into, into the neurosciences of this, but right, it's such an incredibly important yet seemingly complex connection and emotion that we have. So, you know, what happens when, when, when we're building trust? Well, I would argue it's the core of everything. I mean, as humans, you know, we have a fundamental need, a need to feel safe and feel secure. And you can't just make that happen, right? I mean, we still sleep with our backs towards walls or things, right? Like we, we have all these things that have existed as long as we have that get to at our core, we need to feel safe. At what happens, I would say really comes down to oxytocin. And people have probably heard that word. It's the love and bonding hormone, as we like to think of it. We often hear about it with like mother-child relationships. When a child's born, our oxytocin goes off the charts. Um, anytime we breastfeed, something like that, our oxytocin just goes really high. We're, we're bonding, we're building this, I mean, the most trusting relationship you can. And so um, essentially, when someone feels good, they feel safe, secure, uh, the hypothalamus produces oxytocin and it creates a bonding behavior between individuals. So, um, you know, oxytocin then cascades into feeling uh, relaxation, openness, you know, all these things that are trust building. And when oxytocin is low, you know, which 
we have to look at the other side of the equation as well. When it's low, you have really low empathy, um, decreased desire to socialize. We saw a lot of this the last couple of years during the pandemic, um, and it decreases trust. And that's not just in those you know, personal relationships that extends into the workplace. And we see um, work environments where there's a high degree of trust and oxytocin. People are less stressed. They're more productive. And overall, they stay in companies longer. They report being more satisfied. So you know, at the end of the day, the way our hormones are responding and our brain is responding have everything to do with trust and relationships and the decisions that we make. So with a lot of our clients are relationship builders, Mm self-professed and people pleasers as an innate people pleaser. Is, is it impacted by that oxytocin that you're talking about? And is that what drives that behavior? Certainly. Yeah. It can definitely go both ways. Yeah. And the more oxytocin both people create, the higher likelihood that they will find a bond. As an extrovert, is that similar where they, they just, that energy that they seem to generate or receive from connecting with people, is that a part of it as well? Is that, is that driving it as well, that, that chemical release? It is. Uh, we all get our joy from different things, right? So we'll get it from running, some people get it from large crowds, audiences, big, you know, conference type settings. Um, Other people are introverts, but that doesn't mean you don't get that from a group or, or bonding. What I think that comes down to a lot is quality. I'd say quality over quantity. So I like, you know, just, I can only speak to myself, but over the years, I really thought I was an extrovert. I've come to find I'm in, I'm more of an introvert with a lot of extroverted sort of personality characteristics. For me, what it is, is, you know, it's the level of conversation. It's the person that I'm talking to or the people, you know, I can be in a big crowd and if it's the right conversation that is exciting and I'm learning and there's things to be shared, I have all the energy in the world. And then the moment I leave and I shut the hotel door, I crash. I lose, I lose everything, right? Like I just, I gave and gave and gave, Um, you know, and so there are people who are introverted and extroverted who can all benefit from these kinds of interactions. It's just, I would say the quality of the interactions. Yeah. So when I, when I think about this idea of the quality of the interactions, I'm going to relate it to a consulting sales conversation, Nicole. Mm -hmm. So, right. It's that going back to what we talked about prior, you're engaging this prospect or client through your questions and your questions are um, stimulating a cognitive effort or thinking from the prospect and client. So they're having to invest and really engage in the conversation. Could it be, does it happen? Would it happen in that process of really helping that prospect and client think through what they're doing, how they're doing it. Should they be doing something different? Should there be urgency behind it? What are the positive consequences or what are the negative? As you help that other human being think all that through, is that a form of bonding? Is that a form of mm-hmm. connecting and potentially yes. producing some of that 
some of that chemical yes. reaction that, that builds that trust? Anything solution-oriented, certainly. It certainly puts you know all the check marks in the win column. Um, back to what you were saying about it shows someone that you're thinking about them and not yourself. You're helping them work through a problem. Uh, and there is the potential that it won't result in you needing whatever it is they're trying to sell. Uh, and, and so, you know, by leading someone through a series of questions, as long as it's not overtly obvious that you're just trying to sell them something. Yeah. Any interaction that gets a person thinking and being solution oriented towards solving their own problem, being their own hero, you want to think of it like a hero's journey. Um, you know, at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is convince that person, not that you have all the answers, but that by partnering with you, hiring you, engaging you, you can help them work through all the answers, right? You've got to make it about them. I would argue that's more of um, not that I am going to save the day. I'm Yoda and I will help you save the day. Yeah, we, we talk about that a lot. That was fantastic, Nicole. We talk about that a lot, about let's not be the lead character in our story. Let's help the other person become the lead character in their story. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And so it's interesting that there is actually a chemical reaction occurring as we do invest in our questions as consultants, right? We do invest in our listening and we, we really work on the prospect or the client's narrative that there is actually a, a, a reaction that's occurring within the brain. Let's go into trust. So, you know, let's pretend, and I don't know if this is the right question. You can tell me if it is or it's not. Someone says, all right, Nicole, you got a thousand salespeople here in front of you. You know, can you give them three or four things mm -hmm. to be thinking about as they try to build trust with their prospects and clients? How, how would you respond? First, I would say communicate effectively. Yes, this seems very obvious, but anything that leads to confusion, anything that opens up more options causes people to retreat. And so if you're very clear, you're concise, it's going to go a long way. And you know, earlier I said, I hate giving pandemic as an example, but the moment we saw the CDC come out with kind of guidance over here and a little bit of, you know, what to do over there, it completely eroded trust as opposed to coming out and saying, here are the two things we know. We wish we knew more, but here are the two definitive. It was like, well, maybe this and maybe that it completely eroded the public's trust. Uh, so, you know, communicate effectively. Second, I would say be true to your word. And again, seems obvious, but keeping promises goes much further than just about anything else. People, especially if they're wanting to hire you, will be looking for reasons not to trust you. Any missed step along the way, you can just knock that those trust points right off the board. So always follow through on, on your word. Um, three, I'd say don't make rash decisions. Again, this gets kind of the first one about communicate effectively. The more we try and say, oh, here's the answer right out the gate, the more likely we are to have to walk something back or to change course. And that will erode trust. So don't 
have all the answers right away if you don't actually know all the answers. Um, and that sort of leads to the fourth one, which is be honest. And again, seems obvious, but one of the most honest things you can say to a potential client is, I don't know. I don't know is so hard for us, but it is the truth. We don't often have all the answers. And by saying to someone, I don't know, let me check into that or let me look, let me get back to you, tells them I'm being really honest with you and I want to find out the right answer for you as opposed to knowing everything right away. Um, And then last, I would say admit mistakes. And this gets back to that core we talked about earlier of vulnerability. If something doesn't go right, or even if it's as simple as I said, I'd follow up Friday, it's Monday morning. I'm sorry, you know, something got in the way. I couldn't get back to you, but, you know, admit you were wrong, admit you you failed in a small way. Anything that is admitting a mistake, if there is one, is taking responsibility, which shows that you are trustworthy and it's showing that you're vulnerable and that you, you can be trusted in the future because you recognize that there was a mistake. That was excellent. I mean, when I listened to you, I kept thinking about the sales impact, right? The consultant impact, how, how those factors play out in our conversations with prospects and clients. And my interpretation was not maybe necessarily in terms of order of importance, but here was my interpretation. Number one, be transparent with good intent, though. Don't be transparent with poor intent. Be transparent with what we call high intent, which is focused on the other person or focused on the the company that you're working with. So that was one takeaway I, I took. I took objectivity, too. Try to maintain your objectivity. Um, is a big trust factor, right? You know, if, if a prospect says or a client says, we don't know if that's a good idea for us, you know, maintain your objectivity and say, okay, maybe it's not. Let's dive into it together. You know, don't fight the prospect or the client's opinion. And then the vulnerability piece and the honesty piece we've already discussed. So, no, I thought that that was excellent. Um, let's talk about one more topic here and, um, we'll see, see how we do. Um, it's a big one. And, and we, we talk to our clients a lot about this and it's, it's this idea of credibility, right? Establishing credibility. And I, and I'm going to share a story with you, Nicole, on this, which is really what got me thinking about it. So this is probably about six years ago. I was at one of my clients, uh, main location, their headquarters, and this, I was asked to sit in on this presentation. This person had written a couple books, and, and I'm a little bit embarrassed to say I can't even remember the topic that they were coming in to speak on. Um, she came in, and she had all her books laid out, and I, 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 for the first, I think, seven minutes, I don't it, – it was all about – her. She went through a, a slide on all the companies that she's worked with. Mm-hmm. She went through um, the demand that's on her, how everybody wants her to come and talk to them about this topic. She went through all of her, re- not all of it, but like highlighting her research um, and her expertise. 
it was so over the top credentialing. <laughs> I lost complete interest. And to this day, I can't even tell you the topic that she talked about, but I wasn't the only one. I was just curious. So after the, after the workshop, I went to, I don't know, maybe five, six, seven people. And I didn't play my hand. I didn't say, Hey, that was awful. Or, or when I said, what'd you think? I didn't have that mode of all oh, that was, that was a waste of time. You know, I tried to be very objective and neutral. And what I found is everybody else had the same experience. They all tuned out. And so I'll never forget that. I mean, I got to give this person credit. I mean, she had written quite a few books. She obviously has a reputation for being extremely knowledgeable and an expertise in the space. So she deserves the credit for all that hard work and research that she did. But I, I don't, I don't remember exactly even what it was. Yeah. Credentialing <laughs> is such a, I don't have answers here. I probably have more questions than answers, but you know, you bring up such a good point because earlier we talked about bias and, and how, you know, if you have the right credentials, it should immediately be a shortcut to say, I can be trusted. At the same time, to your point, you take away, even what I took away from your takeaway is she was telling you how lucky you are that she made some time for you. Right? Yeah, that's a good As way to say it. <laughs> anything, you know, for, for you. I've been in a similar experience. In fact, I was part of a startup company a few years ago, just a, a quick example in the same vein. And, and it happened enough times that one day on a call, 30 minute call to a potential investor, I timed the co-founders and, uh, with a 30 minute call, the first guy gave his bio for 11 minutes and the second guy gave his bio for 12. They literally on each call with new investors tried to out bio each other. And I remember on that call, I set my timer and at the end of it, I said, look, you know, um, we've lost 23 minutes of the 30. And so no, nobody needs to know anything about me. Here's what the company does. And here's why we think this would be, you know, right in your, your wheelhouse as an investor. And I remember at the end of it saying, you know, you can imagine right then and there, we didn't get the money. <laughs> The startup company no longer exists. And one of the key reasons is they were so busy trying to out-credential and prove they were worthy as individuals, they completely screwed the company over. It was a beautiful idea for a startup, but um, they got in their own way of, of just self-promotion. You know, um, I will say on the flip side, and I, you know, maybe you have something to say to this. Otherwise, maybe it's just sort of left out there for the listener to, to ponder over. You know, as a woman who's younger, um, my background's in neuroscience, which sounds cool, right? Um, I have a doctorate, yay. Um, and yet I still get handed the coffee tray all the time. Uh, and, and so I walk this fine line of I feel as though I need to, in like my bio, have my credentials out there to say like, I'm worthy of being in this room. I'm worthy of you listening to me. I've done the hard work. I've worked in over 50 countries. I'm not new to this, right? On the flip side, there's the part of me that's exactly in line with things you've said, which is I don't need to always say those kinds of things. I'm in the room. So it should just be known that I'm a part of the conversation. I'm worthy and what I heard you say in one of your previous episodes is, you know, it's really about your own insecurity. And for me, I know it's 100% true. 
It's that I feel insecure. Otherwise, I wouldn't use the word worthy. And so I don't have an answer for credentialing per se, but it's not as simple as, you know, give your bio or don't. Um, I think a lot of that is context dependent and sort of your environment. If you're a woman, if you're a minority, if you, you know, we probably bring a lot more baggage to the table where we feel like we have to say, I deserve to be here. And yet it shouldn't be that way. Um, but it's just, that's a credibility and credentialing is a, it's a very difficult space to navigate. I don't think one size fits all. I mean, I obviously, from the two stories you and I shared, there is a clear demarcation point, though, when it, right, it has the opposite effect. But when I was younger, I had this one mentor, and um, he was from Sweden. And I remember I would set appointments, and him and I would go on these appointments together. He owned the company, and I got into credentialing. And then there was this one day after a, a big meeting that I had set up, him and I walked out in the parking lot and he just said, he goes, what are you doing? He goes, nobody cares all right, <laughs> about anything that you've done or who you are. What they care about is if you can help them. Yeah. And, and he just, he was just so matter of fact about it. And he said, you need to think about why you're doing that. Yep. And so sure enough, um, it was because I was insecure. Did yeah. I belong in that meeting? You know. Well, to the word I, you used earlier, I think um, what I would say to that then is what we're both saying is it's about intention. If it's used to help someone with those biases and those mental shortcuts of, hey, I recognize what you need is this and I'm capable of this and I've got a track record to prove it, right? It can be very valuable, if it's to do what I said, you know, I've been guilty of myself, which is you know trying to prove I deserve to be there, that's self-serving. It, it doesn't have a place, right? So um, that takes real self-awareness. Uh, so I would just say, yeah, it's context dependent and it really comes down to your intention. If it's about helping the other person recognize they can trust you and it's done with them in mind, then credentialing probably has a place with credibility. If it's about making yourself feel better, then it doesn't belong there. 100%. And it is about self-awareness. And I know that's a very challenging muscle for all of us to develop is that self-awareness. But I think it's a mix, right, Nicole? It's There are, to your point, times and places where sharing a little bit or establishing some competency with the prospect or client absolutely is needed. But you also have to build in the high intent component of learning and asking questions. And as we talked about earlier, helping that prospect or client become the hero yep. in whatever story it is that they're creating. Yep. I think there has to be a mix there. Um, and I, I, I do believe from a competency credibility standpoint, when there's a fine line and when it's when it's overdone, and and that's when I think everybody has to be careful that you can't go down that rabbit hole. You have to be careful to share a little bit, but then pull yourself back and continue to invest in the learning process too with that prospect or client. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think that's an excellent way to put it. What causes the skepticism, real brief, if we can? Like, so when we when we receive someone's credentialing, we tend to become skeptical. What what causes that? It could be a number of things. Um, you know, earlier one of the examples or, or things that we talked about was when you give people information that goes against what they have believed in the past or what they've been told or what they just know. Um, if it doesn't immediately fit in line and we see it with people when they, you know, the news channels they choose, the articles they read, if it validates what they think, trust goes through the roof. Anything that pushes against what they innately believe and or have heard or just used to skepticism immediately. It's like, well, who wrote it? Where did it come from? Do they have things to support it? You know, the questions you don't ask if it validates what you already think. It's a great way to put it. That was awesome. From today's episode, we hope you learned something new from Nicole's perspective on giving advice to others. Telling someone how you can help, aka sharing your value, doesn't engage or build trust. Learning to ask questions is how to build a connection with someone. Think about where you spend your energy. Are you trying to convince someone to take your advice, or are you trying to help them broaden their perspective and think differently? We also loved how Nicole gave us insight into understanding that trust is intentional and so much more than commonalities. Nicole's work around vulnerability and trust is tied closely with Lapin 180's upcoming four-part webinar series, where we'll be discussing self-awareness, mindset, and overcoming stigmas in business development. Many of the principles Dan and Nicole discussed in this episode will be expanded upon in our webinars, set to begin in February 2023. You can sign up at lapin180.com slash webinars. If you enjoyed this episode of Breaking Sales, please share it on your social media platforms or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.